It's time for Security Now. Hey, I'm Tom Merritt filling in for Leo, who's off on a cruise, and I get to hang out with Steve Gibson and talk all about security. We're going to go over the new browser updates, both in Firefox and Chrome. There's some do not track stuff to keep an eye on, but there's some cool stuff in that Chrome revision as well. And we're still going to be talking about OAuth. Just because Leo's gone doesn't mean there's not more to discuss. We've got some great questions from folks in our Q&A section coming up next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 377, recorded November 7th, 2012. Your questions, Steve answers, number 154. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support for all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit gotoassists.com and use the promo code SECURITY. And by Carbonite Online Backup, automatic, continual, unlimited backup for your computer files. Just $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code SECURITY now. You'll get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now with the man who tries to keep you as safe as you possibly can online, uh, MrGRC.com himself, Steve Gibson. Uh, How's it going, Steve? It's going great, and everyone is probably realizing you're not Leo. I am obviously not, not Leo. <laughs> Leo's off on his cruise, uh, so I'll, I get the pleasure, I get the perk of uh, filling in on security now for three weeks. This is going to be fun, man. I can't, I can't wait. Well, you have a familiar voice to everyone who listens to you and your gang over on Tech News t- tonight. So, t- I guess it's today, isn't it? Tech yeah, news I guess today? it's sort of Tech News this morning because we yeah. <laughs> we do it in the mornings now. But yes, I'm Tom Merritt, uh, host of Tech News today. Uh, and this is Security Now. Now, uh, Leo is still going to be with us in part, Steve. Ooh. We have we have a little bit of Leo to share with you. Uh, That's with, technology with a couple of our sponsors, and let's go to the first one right now. Hello, hello there, friends and uh, and uh, family and everybody watching security. I'm sorry I can't be with you. Hey, Thank you, Tom, for filling in. I really appreciate it. Uh, hey, Steve, how are you? Uh, I just wanted to mention backup. You know, I'm like I feel like I'm the ba- I'm the I'm the backup bad guy. I'm the guy who tells you I do all the shows on the radio show. You gotta back up, but you know, it's for your own good. And I, backup does not have to be broccoli. Backup could be good for you and taste good when you use Carbonite.com. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is not this is backup where you don't even have to think about it. You just you're going to take one step. You're going to go to Carbonite.com. You're going to sign up fifty nine dollars a year for everything on your computer, and you're just going to install it on your Mac or your PC, and then you forget about it. That's it. You're done. Whenever you're online, Carbonite is continuously, automatically backing up. Uh, it, all the changes are automatically recorded. It's it's cloud storage, too, so you can go visit your stuff on Carbonite. Just log into your Carbonite account on any computer. They have smartphone and tablet apps free. 
So you see your stuff. And I like that in a backup solution. I like to be able to look and see, oh, yeah, you got everything. Okay. And then if the disaster happens, and you know disasters do happen, they will happen. Hard drives die, Hurricane Sandy, whatever. You've got a backup. And I tell you, for peace of mind alone, this is worth it. And it's less than five bucks a month, so you don't have to even worry about your stuff. It's really worth it. Try it right now. Mac or PC, Carbonite.com. Click Try It Free and use our offer code SECURITYNOW for 30 days free. Carbonite.com, the better backup plan. Secure, yes, trust no one. Steve, Steve vetted it. It is trust no one. Uses SSL for transmission. You don't have to have trust no one. Uh, but if you want to turn that on, they have that. Only you have the keys. Automatic online backup. It's $59 a year complete. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now to try it free for two weeks. And you'll get two months free when you buy. Now back to Steve and Tom and security now. Thanks, guys. Oh, thanks. We, we won't be missing Leo as badly now. We've got a little Leo with us. We got a little hint, yes. All right, well, let's get into the security news, uh, uh, starting with the, the updates. Uh, we got some Adobe updates to talk about. Finally, Adobe is on schedule. We've had some famous emergency updates, which they reluctantly released outside of their quarterly normal update schedule. But this is back on their, their planned schedule for actually yesterday, which was also uh, Election Day in the U.S., so this is November 6th, was they made available updates to Flash and Air, both of those runtimes. Um, the updates pertain to Windows, Mac, Linux, and Android releases. Um, so across the board, they fix seven troublesome critical vulnerabilities. So these are worth doing. I um, I went to check my version under Firefox, wondering if Firefox would be alerting me to the fact that I that this version of Flash was out of date because there's been some plans to do that. And I've, I, I know that in some cases it takes responsibility. In this case, it didn't. Maybe I need to shut it down and start it up again or something. But you can go to www.adobe.com slash software slash flash slash about and... That will run a little Flash app, which shows you a bouncing red cube, uh, given that you permit Flash to run in your browser. And it will show you your current version and also list the latest versions that are available. And in, in the case that I did this today, I was seeing that I was not running what they have just released. Now, on that page, they do give you a download the latest button. If you go there... You want to be careful to turn off the get your free McAfee virus oh, scan. Did they opt you in? Do you have to uncheck oh, it? Yeah, yeah. I, that's so annoying. You, you can also go to www.adobe.com slash products slash flash player slash distribution three. That is the numeral three dot HTML. That just takes you directly to a clean page where you just get the download that you need for whatever platform you're running and no no you know upsell nonsense uh <laughs> installing things you didn't ask for now chrome so, has its own uh, adobe flash built into it but a lot of chrome users are still need to do this right 
Uh, I'm not sure where Chrome is. I haven't seen an, I didn't see an announcement from Chrome in the last day or two, but they're, they're now taking responsibility for keeping that uh, up to date. So they are, they ought to be doing it for you. Yeah. So you might want to check on that. I know there are some features in Flash that I actually have to have the Adobe Flash plugin running to get them to work in Chrome. Because the Chrome Flash is incompatible for some reason. Uh, Every once in a while, there's a page that'll do an auto detect. So that's just just a little extra thing uh, to keep in. And you know, it is annoying that we cannot get away from it. I mean, I, I know that when I, I mean, I really love my iPad, and I use it all the time when I'm out and about. And you run across sites where it's like, okay, wait, I just have to go, you know, wait till I get home yeah. in order to do this because you know it's still it it, it provides enough. Extra, if you'll pardon the uh, term, flash <laughs> to the site that that there are a lot of sites that still just assume that you're going to have it or be able to make it available. So Wordsworth in I'm, the chat room points us to uh, the Chrome Blogspot claims that their Chrome 23 stable release uh, did include a flash update. So ah, good. good and in fact, we're about to talk about uh, Chrome 23 stable, which uh, is just out. But I wanted to mention Firefox first. Um, uh, we've got a new Firefox. Uh, beta, which is that they're continuing to move their click-to-play forward, which uh, click-to-play is the technology which prevents vulnerable plugins from running without the user's permission. Now, (laughs) you know, I didn't have to click it just now when I was playing with Flash, and it was vulnerable and obsolete, so it must not be in... (laughs) Well, or not in the version that I've got yet. Mm -hmm. What's What's nice is that they are they're doing something else in this latest release that'll be out. I'm, I, for some reason, I have the number seventeen in my head. You know, we're all running with in crazy version numbers these days. Instead of if you know, we were on Firefox three forever and then four forever, and suddenly Firefox version numbers took off. You know, incrementing at the same rate as the national debt. Yeah. So um, it's just gone crazy. But but they're They've added something which, which the Chromium project has been been talking about in their blogs, which is um, enforcement of strict transport security. So we did an, an episode on strict transport security. The idea is that that what we really want is we want to use the web with SSL as much as possible. So. If sites support ubiquitous secure socket connections, that is HTTPS, then the way to make that even stronger is for the site to be able to declare to the browser that that it supports strict transport security. It can, and and and, and what the browser will then do is, if any URLs are in the page which are not HTTPS, this permits the the browser to upgrade them to SSL connections, knowing that the site is okay with that. So the benefit is that it it prevents various types of man-in-the-middle and and JavaScripting attacks whereby by filtering the page coming in and removing the S's from the HTTPs, it would be possible to, for example, to get 
cookies that are supposed to be protected by SSL security, if they were not properly flagged as secure only cookies, you could get them to leak out in the clear. And if, of course, this is famously important for things like, you know, using uh, laptops and in, in open Wi-Fi networks like Starbucks uses, where there's no wireless security at the at, at the hotspot. And should you still so, use like something like HTTPS everywhere in addition to this? Um, well, the the two interact. Mm-hmm. What what you want is you want um, you if the site says that it supports this, then the browser is able to itself update the security. Now, the problem has been though that if there was initially a man in the middle that prevented the server from making this declaration. That is the way the way this is done is when you initially connect the 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 server sends back a response header set as it normally does with in, in answering every in every browser request, but it adds a header that is strict hyphen transport hyphen security colon and then an age for that to be enforced and some additional parameters like whether it that includes subdomains within uh, from from the um, the root domain of the site so so the, there has still been a problem with this which is if if that initial declaration is filtered then the 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 user agent or the browser never gets the news that the site supports strict transport security. So, so what Firefox is now experimenting with, and this is part of the Chromium project, is, is automatically bringing up strict, strict transport security preemptively for a large and growing list of of like previously known built-in domains which support it. So and and this is a list which is large already and growing. So for for all the servers that are known to support trick, strict transport security, the browser itself would have knowledge of that and would never per, ne, never initiate a non a non SSL connection to 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 that domain or subdomain. So this is really nice. This is I mean what 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 we're seeing over the last couple of years as as sort of this awareness has been growing that the the future is cloud and connected and more of our experience is is through the browser is you know we're seeing real maturation of of browser security and technology um, in in really useful ways. So this is just neat. The idea that that Firefox and Chrome will preemptively know which sites are able to support SSL, even if you've never visited them. So this max age, um, the max age header allows the browser to be taught that a site supports strict transport security but you still need to get it the first time and so so there's that little bit of a wedge that the malware could exploit if you if the browser wasn't told 
or if you were using a new machine and you had never visited that site, so the browser, again, wouldn't have the information that that site is um, able to support STS. So this is just, you know, it, it's a small thing, but it's one one fewer ways of of malware getting into, you know, getting hold of our browsers. And, of course, browsers are becoming uh, increasingly important. And who updates so, that white list of the servers? Is that administered by um, it's just It's just built in. It's built into the core browser code. So as you, you know, now now we're seeing much more smooth and continuous updates in the background so you know i mean chrome is yeah. updating itself you know every time you launch it 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 verifies that it's got the latest and greatest and what we've seen in the last few iterations of firefox is that they've been making their own update process increasingly transparent so that you know they're following that that chrome model of just of taking responsibility for keeping the browser current all the time and, Mozi- and, and, and so, is it Mozilla that's making the list in the first place? I don't know. Um, yeah. I went to – I have the link in the show notes, uh, src.chromium.org, um, and it's a, a, a JSON file, strict or transport underscore security underscore state underscore static. And so that's you know built into the, the browser code base and – um, and it's a pretty comprehensive list. It's down yeah. toward the end of the list. It's probably the project, the Chromium project, then that's keeping it up to date. That's cool. yes. So you have a yep. little, uh, you, lo- you have a little uh, HSTS guacamole and a little HTTPS everywhere rice, and then you wrap it up in a VPN burrito, and and you've got delicious security. <laughs> right. Uh, well, so talk- speaking, yeah. Let's speaking talk about of- Chrome version twenty three. Uh, we mentioned yep. that briefly earlier. Yeah. So um, Chrome with version 23, has been the last browser, the last major browser, to finally add support for the Do Not Track header, the, you know, DNT colon. Uh, Microsoft, Mozilla, Apple, and even Opera uh, have enabled it some time ago. Of course, we've spoken about how Microsoft's enabling, well, I, I, I should say those have supported it some time ago, and they've all played by the official W3C rules of having it off by default with the single exception of Microsoft, which in IE10 has enabled that header unless the user turns it off, which has created some controversy. Um, apparently, the Apache web server uh, group have stated that they're going to just ignore the do not track header when it is expressed from IE10 because... It breaks the rules. Now, Google has done it in the standards-compliant fashion, as has Firefox and Apple and and Opera, where it's off by default. But not only is it off by default, but it's quite well hidden by default. So I went looking for it, and you you go to uh, Settings in Chrome, and you look there, it's not present. So you need to click the show advanced settings at the bottom of that page. Then that expands another block of things, which then exposes the privacy option. And under privacy, under the privacy section, the last item there is send a do not track, it has in quotes, request with your browsing traffic. And if you, if you click that, it pops up a notice that sort of explains it. 
And it, it's interesting because, you know, you have to then say okay to that. The first time I just hit cancel because I thought, okay, I'm just kind of canceling this notification. But it disabled the checkbox. So it's like, okay, it's there. But, you know, they're not really encouraging you to click this. So when you do click it, what pops up says enabling do not track means that a request will be included with your browsing traffic. Any effect depends on whether a website responds to the request and how the request is interpreted. For example, some websites may respond to this request by showing you ads that are not based on other websites you visited. Many websites will still collect and use your browsing data, for example, to improve security, to provide content, services, ads, and recommendations on their websites, and to generate reporting statistics. Then they have a learn more at the end. And if you click that, then it takes you to a page that asks the question, does Chrome provide details of which websites and websites, which websites and web services respect do not track requests and so, how they interpret them. It's kind of a funny answer too, isn't it? Uh-huh. And then so they, they answer their own question saying, no, at this time, most web services, including Google's, do not alter their behavior or change their services upon receiving do not track requests. So nobody uses it, but just so you know. <laughs> well, and, you know, and, and this is, this is why lots of people just think it's nonsense. My position has always been it's better than nothing. And that, you know, once upon a time, the web was, re was regarded as nonsense. And there was this whole chicken and egg problem. People were, who were arguing against the Internet were saying, well, no one's going to go there if there aren't sites there. And, it, and no, there, no one's going to do sites because no one's going to go. And it's like, okay, well, you know, that all worked out. Yeah. So I'm convinced that, you know, this is progress. I, and this is the way, this is exactly the way I've said it was going to happen. I've if, said. If Microsoft if every, doesn't ruin it, though, right? Because the, the idea is that you need to get most of the legitimate websites on board to respect the do not track. And, and then it's useful. But a bunch of them are now getting upset because Microsoft turned it on by default, as you mentioned, breaking the rules. That's starting to muddy the waters of whether it's going to catch on or not. Well, this isn't going to be an easy path. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the, the big problem is that everyone, you know, everyone argues against this saying, well, it's voluntary. It's like today it's voluntary. That's fine. Users are expressing their opinions. So then we'll, and so we'll get some sense for that. Now, you're right about Microsoft, but of course, it's only in IE 10 of, 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 of that particular browser version, which they have said they're going to, they're going to make available uh, under Windows 7 as well. Mm -hmm. So, so sites know which user, which user agent, which browser you're using and which version. So, you know, if so, for example, Apache can ignore the do not track header on IE10, but choose to make it available for, you know, other uh, sites running on their services for other browsers or even other versions of Internet Explorer. But the sites so, have to get the critical mass. And if they don't have IE, then it starts to be a harder argument to get them to, to bother respecting it. That's, that's what I worry about anyway. What I expect it, we will see in... You know, 
during Obama's presidency. During the next four <laughs> so years. So that gives us four years. Yeah. We will see some legislation. Eventually, it'll be soft and it'll get stronger. And, it, and ultimately, it will end up being legally enforceable. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's this is the way we're going to get there. And I'm happy that I'm talking to you, Tom, and not Leo as we discuss this. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk about something fun. GPU accelerated video in Windows. Well, yeah, that's another well, that's another thing that's in Chrome version 23 is in their experiments, they've uh, w- what Chrome version 23 adds is video playback in the browser now uses the graphics processing unit to essentially lower the power consumption since the GPU is 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 got hardware specifically designed for rendering video it's able to do it's able to do that with with a built-in hardware rather than lots of software so you end up they're saying getting about a 25% increase in battery life playing video in Chrome 23 on a laptop versus Chrome 22 and presumably other non-GPU accelerated video browsers. So that's just, an, again, it's, this is all good yeah. because we're just sort of seeing browsers, browsers moving forward and, and, you know, Google is paving some of these roads. Firefox is paving others. They're having to be cross-compatible and, like, do the good things that the other one does. And so it's – it's and then Microsoft is sort of, you know, coming along too, trying to keep up with the various standards that the other guys are pioneering. Anything so, that gets me more battery life, I am very much in favor of Yeah, uh, wherever I can get it. Now, this next thing, the per-site permissions, reminds me a little of NoScript. Well – that, I'm very excited. That's yeah. one of the huge movements forward. In fact, NotScript was the was the extension that I have been running in Google so in, in Chrome. Chrome. So yeah, far. I run that one too on on Chrome. And so I'm I'm happy that that now we what we have is we have added with also with version 23 is per site permissions are built into Chrome. That's fantastic. once again. They're buried, so you know it, they're, they're essentially non-existent in the same way that the DNT header uh, option is non-existent for non-expert users. But it's there. So once again, you go into settings and then show advanced settings, and then under privacy is oh well. First, I, sh- I, I should say the way you see this is when you're looking at any site's page, you click on the little the little site icon to the left of the URL. So where the so lock goes? Exactly, the little lock guy. That now pops open a, a drop-down showing you for that site what set up, what a very comprehensive set of settings are in place for, um, in, in, uh, for cookies, images, JavaScript, handlers, plugins, pop-ups, locations, notifications, full screen, mouse lock, uh, and what they call media. Um, and, you, and so normally a site will default to the default settings for the browser, and then you're able to override either always on or always off for all of those things individually for that site. So I, I thought, okay, well, to make this work the way we're like for real safety, we need somehow to turn JavaScript off 
by, you know, disable JavaScript by default. So then I went digging around, how do I change the defaults globally so that then I enable it for specific sites? And so that's where you go into settings, show advanced settings under privacy, and then click the content settings button. And that pops up a dialogue with where all of these features can have their defaults changed. And it also explains what they are to some degree. For example, it has a, an, a, an item for handlers, which uh, allows sites to ask to become default handlers. And you can say, eh, no, don't bother me with that. Or plugins, you, you can choose run the plugins, click, the, click to play, or block them. And uh, there's something called mouse lock. And I thought, what the hell is mouse lock? Well, it allows sites to disable the mouse cursor. Oh. And you, and you can either allow that. You can have, uh, if the site requests it, you can have Chrome prompt you for whether you want to allow that or not. Or you can block it outright. And then there's also two different options at the bottom, which are nice to see, which is for flash, camera, and micro, uh, microphone control where sites can request it or sites can require it. And then you're able to either have Chrome ask you or block you. So, oh, and right there, all of those support per site overrides. And there's management buttons that allows you to pop up and see what overrides you have in place um, uh, uh, on, on a per site basis. Well, that, that's great because something like Google Hangout, I might say, oh, I, I want it to have access to my camera and mic because I trust it, but I don't, I don't right. want anything else to access that thing. Right. So so what we're getting, and, and this is really nice, the only thing we don't yet have is side tabs, and so I can't use Chrome yet because, you know, I've got 75 tabs open over in Firefox right now. Um, <laughs> but we know that, we know that, They've, that, that Google understands that some people organize their lives around tabs. And so they didn't like having the, the tabs on the side. But with, there has been, you know, blogging from, from Google saying, yes, we understand. We're going to come up with something, some sort of really cool tab management. Um, which reminds me that right now I'm using an add-on over on Firefox to move the tabs onto the side Firefox will be getting native side side column tabs. And, of course, this is all as a consequence of the fact that screens are becoming wider than they are tall. Mm -hmm. And so it's making more sense to get the tabs off from the top and move them over to the side, in which case you can just have so many of them. It's, it's wonderful. I like being able to move them around. A lot, too, which is the uh -huh. one thing that Chrome has been nice to. But any of the extensions for Chrome that I've tried make that buggy for some reason. So having it native, I think, would be would be desirable for that. Yeah, reason and I, 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 I want to see what they come up with. I'm, I, I'm, I'm really happy with the UI, with the Chrome UI. I'm still a Firefox user because I've got my tabs on the side and, and, and the add-ins that I like. But, yeah. boy, Chrome is maturing as a power user's browser with 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 this version 23 release where we we can change the the global defaults to lock it down the way we want to and then 
And then on a site by site basis, just as with no script, we can, you know, flip these things back on again. It's it's getting close. Yeah. The only thing the only thing that bugs me about the per site permissions is that I didn't have it up till now. It's like I spent so much time <laughs> with not script customizing and teaching it. It's like, ah, yeah. why didn't you have this before? But it's great. Uh, I, I think that's awesome. So yeah. tell me about this TNO cloud backup solution. What is this? Well, I I teased everyone about it last week because I received email um, from its author telling me that the news was embargoed until yesterday. Well, I'm not sure what that meant because everybody else was tweeting me about it. And I thought, (laughs) well, okay, wait a minute. How does everyone else know about this? And I do too, but I'm not supposed to talk about it. Anyway, so back on May 2nd, I famously tweeted... Uh, And this is at SGGRC. I said, quote, ARQ, unquote, cloud backup for Mac to Amazon S3 with TNO crypto and iOS viewer. The deeper I dig, the more I wish I was a Mac user. Wow. And then I did a little uh, shortened shortcut to haystacksoftware.com. Now... What the news is, is that with version 3 that was released, I guess, yesterday, um, ARC, ARQ, for the Mac, now supports the um, Amazon Glacier service. Glacier is, uh, is the, and we've discussed it on the podcast a few weeks ago, is a an interesting and very appealing long-term storage solution from Amazon. The idea is that if you don't need rapid access to your cloud data, they will make it available to you eventually, but at a much lower cost. In fact, it's one penny per gigabyte per month. So... So, okay, let's do a little math. Yeah, that's a hundred gig. That's one dollar a month for a hundred gig or 10 bucks a month for a terabyte. So that's really nice. Um, Arc, the, one of the reasons I like Arc is that it is a flat fee purchase, $29. You buy it per computer one time and then you own it. Um, you can upgrade from Arc 2 for 15 bucks to arc three. Um, and, uh, I did look at the, at the crypto, uh, anyone who's interested, who's a Mac user. I know that Leo switched to it. Um, the UI is very Mac ish. And, you know, that is to say it's, it's not super techie. Uh, it's very friendly, easy to use. So it's haystacksoftware.com. Um, and this, I mean, to, to me, the fit with, with S3 Glacier is perfect for for long-term archival storage. Yes, you know, absolutely. Pe- pe- people might say, oh, well, but I got, you know, 10 terabytes of data, so that would be $100 a month. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. No, what, have you got 10 terabytes? Sure, of like crap that you ripped from DVDs or downloaded from, you know, torrents or who knows what. My point is that, that 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 stuff isn't original content. Anybody who's like you know creating anything original, even photo collections, are not going to be that massive. So so and this is a this is a great deal. 
So I just think it makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah, so, I, this reminds me of the old Jungle Disk service, which did uh, S3 for its back end. You paid for the same sort of thing. You paid for the software, and then you just subscribed to S3. Uh, well, and I stopped using that, I don't know, four or five years ago because the S3 fees were getting too big for what I had. Right. So and Glacier Jungle makes this Disk, worthwhile again. Yeah, Jungle Disk was uh, our choice as a, as a high-quality TNO, you know, trust no one crypto. They did it right. And and Arc has done it right too, so that your system knows the password. It's symmetric crypto. It never leaves your machine. All that's being sent up there is pseudo random noise. And and Amazon is doing nothing but just storing your random numbers, as far as they can tell. No, as far as we know, no force on Earth is able to decrypt that stuff. You know, it's it's really good crypto. So I did vet it completely and looked at it carefully, and that's why I recommended for Mac users, HaystackSoftware.com was was a great solution. So I really like the fact that you can put that much data up at Amazon. And hey, you know, for things like archival backup, you don't need instant access to it. No. So you know, Glacier is a is a really nice trade off. It's one of the reasons I'm using this little Zarezen laptop now, even though it's only got a 64 gig flash drive. Is I get to use a flash drive, and I've got I've got encrypted uh, backups of of the stuff I don't need every day, and I've got a Dropbox with the stuff that I go back and forth, and and that I do need access all the time if I need a little more space than what this thing has. So yeah, it's it's perfect that way. So tell me, so, how do you pronounce this next thing? Is it Port Query? Um, I think so. I, I mean, I know that's what it's short for. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice too because Google only produces the proper results for it. Um, it's not a new utility, but someone who tweets to me often as uh, his Twitter handle is Captain Caveman, C A P T N underscore Caveman. It does make me want to yell like the cartoon whenever I hear his, <laughs> his real name is Joachim. Um, I think he's over in Germany somewhere. He's been a, a follower and a frequent uh, contributor to uh, Twitter uh, stream f- for me for years. Anyway, he uh, he sent me a link to a a page of free Microsoft security stuff. And in browsing through it, I mean, I saw the, you know the EMET stuff and and random things that we know about, but there was this port query that I thought our users would get a kick out of, and it's free. It's old. It's back from 2003, so nine years ago. But it's small and lightweight. It's so if you just Google P O R T Q R Y, what it is, and the reason I I wanted to bring it up to our users' attention or our listeners' attention, is that it is a local port scanner. So there's always been interest in, in on a, on a, within a local area network, scanning your own machines. And, and this is very small and lightweight. It's a few hundred K and runs on anything post-NT. So all the way back to Windows 2000 and, and on. Um, so I just wanted to bring it to people's attention. Uh, it, it's, it's a, a simple command line oriented uh, scanner and shows the status of ports on machines and supports a number of protocols. So it's able to check them for different protocols um, and written by a, a Microsofty um, cool. some, some time ago. Captain Caveman's good with that stuff. Uh, <laughs> yes. There's, a, there's a, a, a security movie up on Kickstarter that apparently is your fault. I, I guess that's the case. Um, I wanted to give a little shout out and let our users know 
uh, there's a guy who's actually in my neck of the woods in Costa Mesa, California, Jonathan Schieffer, uh, who tweets at J-S-C-H-I-E-F-E-R, but he has the more memorable, and I was surprised he was able to get this domain, therootkit.com. Surprised the domain. didn't have it, yeah. If yeah, if you go to therootkit.com, it bounces you over to his Kickstarter page. And so what he tweeted me is he said, he says at SGGRC, I'm doing a Kickstarter for my movie, therootkit.com, about computer hackers. Most of my research came from Security Now. Thanks. So I went over to the page and under his his who are you he describes himself as he says my name is jonathan schieffer i'm the writer director editor and one of the producers on the root kit i've been writing scripts for 10 years i've been making movies short films commercials music videos and industrial videos for the past three years but that's what i do who am i i'm a person like you trying to make my dreams come true trying to make a difference the root kit is my best attempt to date so, as of course is the case with Kickstarter, he's hoping to generate some some critical mass of of contributions in order to help produce this movie. Anyone who's interested, I encourage you to go to therootkit.com, check it out, and maybe consider uh, supporting him. Uh, I am certainly going to do so. Yeah, and, I'm going uh, to maybe uh, take a look at this. We could talk about it on frame rate as well. Yeah, that'd be great. That's so, cool. I did find a nice testimonial. Uh, for Spinrite that I wanted to share with our listeners. Um, uh, this guy's rather formal. He said, Dear Mr. Gibson, and then he says in parentheses, Steve. I was like, okay. He is says, that I just your got father? Off- do, you, do you use that? To- <laughs> Mr. Gibson is my father. <laughs> he says, I just got off the phone with your helpful, knowledgeable, and nice sales slash customer service lady. I had my Spinrite moment. A major catastrophic hard drive failure caused by power outages and surges from the fast-moving storm system here in the east. Whoops. So uh, he says, the surge protector did not work. The drive was caught in in an endless loop, and I knew there were disk errors from using other lame third-party utilities. He says, three different ones. My OS files were there, but my efforts to repair did not work. One tool said I had, quote, disk errors, unquote, and the restore points, of course, would not work either. The drive's controller chip was possibly fried, and my drive seemed toasted as well. Of course, I had an image that was about three weeks old, but the drive had the image on it in a different partition, and both were now unreadable. Oof. So, I purchased Spinrite 6 after hearing about it frequently on the Security Now podcast. After figuring that it was my only option as the malfunctioning disk could not be restored from my save image or backup, and the reinstallation was also inaccessible. (laughs) I needed to get it working again so I could image or do a repair installation of the OS. I used your well-designed program to create a bootable Spinrite CD. I started it after following the easy-to-follow instructions and waited and watched. Spinrite automatically recovered and repaired 12 sectors... And I was then able to boot and have the disk detected in another machine as my motherboard was RMA'd to Intel. I guess it really did fry him. Wow, yeah. After a repair installation, the machine is back to normal 
with no files lost. It boots fine, and Spinrite saved the day. It was well worth the cost and time saved, easy to use, and after nearly 20 years of making systems, this is the, was the first I needed to use it. But I know it will not be the last. Thanks for a great and easy-to-use product, David G. Spigener in Marlboro, Connecticut. So, David, thanks for sharing your your happy story. When I saw it was from Connecticut, I wondered if that was going to be a hurricane or storm-related yeah. uh, story. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people in similar situations uh, out there with all of the havoc that that caused. All right, right. Well, I, I'm, I'm actually still missing Leo a little bit. Should we, should we hear from him again? <laughs> ah, hey, good Tom, hey, Steve, if you don't mind, I'd like to interrupt just briefly and talk a little bit about our sponsor, Citrix. Uh, I have, I've worked with Citrix since 2000... Well, actually, since 2004, but even before then, uh, I worked with a company that Citrix acquired, Expert City. That's uh, where they got the go-to-my-PC uh, technology, I think. And... Uh, Go to Assist, I've been using for a long time. It's how I fix my mom's computer. Go to Assist is a wonderful product. And if you're in IT, it is absolutely a must-have. Now, if you, if you visit Go to Assist, you'll see they've gone well beyond uh, remote assistance. I mean, it still is their best remote and the most used, by the way, remote support uh, system in the world. 38% of, uh, uh, of all remote support it's the market share leader. 38% of all remote support is uh, go to assist. But now it's much more than that. They have added more capabilities. And I have to say, this is a tool everybody in IT should have. And if you wanted to take your IT business to the next level, like become a managed service provider like, uh, like Russell Tammany, this is the tool you need. Visit gotoassist.com, read about it. They've got the remote support and all the features you want, you know, eight sessions at once, unattended support, and things like that. But they also now have a service desk for ticket management. You can manage, track, and resolve issues, um, change, release, and configuration management. And it's, by the way, the portal, everything you do is self-branded. So it's your logo. Uh, Go to Assist puts you front and front and center, and because that's it's your business they're talking about. They've also added monitoring. And when I saw this, and I first saw it a couple uh, about six months ago before it was public, I was blown away. You put the remote crawler from Go to Assist on your client's network; it assays everything, not just hardware, network attached resources, but also software, so you know everything that's running on that network. And then you can set up a dashboard that gives you proactive information about. Everything from network performance to the, to the state of the state of the co- toner cartridge, and you can get alerts by instant messenger, uh, text message, email, so you know exactly the status of your client's network. And this is how people like Russell manage. Uh, you know, Russell's got three people managing three hundred plus clients. Only way you could do this is with this with stuff like this. Really amazing. So you get the monitoring, you get the, tr- the tr- trouble tracking, and. The service desk, and you get the remote support. This is Go to Assist, and you can get it all free for the next thirty days. Right now, I want you to visit GoToAssist.com. Click the Try It Free button. Our promo code is Security. Just one word: Security. Um, they know that a lot of IT pros listen to Security now, and they'd like you to give it a try. GoToAssist.com. Use the offer code Security. Now back to Steve and Tom and Security now. All right, it's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, it's time for a little listener feedback. This is number 155. I was, I was talking, Steve, before the show. It's been almost a year since I filled in on security now, and we, I, the last one I did was a Q&A. Yep. 
So let's start off with Sean O'Brien in Texas uh, tweeting you the following question at SGGRC. Uh, please don't say it's hard to factor large primes. It's impossible to factor any prime. <laughs> so, ah. Yeah, so, okay, T- to everyone who sent this, I ran across a number of similar people groaning at me in the mailbag. And, okay, so I I guess I have been misspeaking. Um, this is, uh, you know, a, a, okay, first of all, I would argue that it's not impossible to factor any prime. It's trivially easy. Exactly. Because- I was just thinking the same thing. I'm like, well, you can do it once. <laughs> so, right. So it's, uh, so what I, and, and we, we all know that what I have been meaning to say every time I say it's hard to factor large primes is that it's hard to factor the product of large primes. So I've, I've been taking a shortcut. I apologize to all of our pedantic listeners. I want to, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't say that, uh, that they're wrong because I'm a perfectionist as well. I mean, we know I am. And so... I have been misspeaking, so I stand corrected to all of you who said, Steve, you know, you you keep talking about factoring primes. It's like, okay, factoring the product of large primes. So if I make the mistake again, we all know that we all know what I mean. (laughs) I'm going to try not to make that mistake. Now I'm I'm sure I'll be so self-conscious about it that I will say it correctly from now on. You're you're, you're absolutely, you're a good man, Steve, for owning up to it and and doing that. Because I've done exactly what you're doing right now. It really does help you not make the mistake again. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Andrew in Arizona wonders about decrypting files. He says, Steve, I have a question about cracking an encrypted file or block of text. I understand how it's possible to use a dictionary attack to figure out a string of text, for example, a password that has been hashed. Hash the text if the hashes match viola but i am wondering how the process works for encrypted files where would you start and how would you know when you've guessed the right key okay so that's that's a great really a good question um there are there are two approaches for so so the idea being you've got a blob of what looks like just pseudo random noise and we assume that that the reverse engineering information is available to tell you what crypto algorithm was used to encrypt it. So you know what crypto algorithm you would use to decrypt it, meaning that the only missing piece of information is the key, which is, you know, what, 128 bits, 256 bits, whatever. So the question is, how do you know how 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 do you go about doing a brute force attack essentially well there's there's two solutions or two approaches one of the things that normally comes along with encryption is authentication that is not only are you going to decrypt something but the algorithm which is used or a secondary algorithm also authenticates that it has not been modified. So it's not enough just to to apply the key and and get something that appears good. How do you know it wasn't cleverly tampered with so that 
it looks fine, but it's actually different data than was originally encrypted. And so normally most, most encryption modes um, either authenticate at the same time or there's an authentication pass that can be made. So, so you could apply keys and then, uh, I mean, like brute force different keys and apply the authentication portion to see whether the block authenticates and if it does, then perform the decryption. In some cases, the authentication process is faster than decrypting it. So, so that works. But what you can normally do is only decrypt the beginning of the file, which is going to be faster than either of those two approaches. For example, you might have a TrueCrypt volume, which has a well-documented, publicly well-known format and header and so so the idea would be you successively guess what the key might be and apply that key to the beginning of the true crypt volume and see if you get something that makes sense see if if the 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 result of maybe the first 1k looks like a valid true crypt header it's extremely unlikely that you would ha- you would guess a key which makes uh, the 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 beginning of the volume decrypt perfectly but it's actually the wrong key and the rest of the volume decrypts incorrectly i mean it's possible but really unlikely so but 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 if nothing else only do the beginning till you get something that looks like it's good and then apply the key to the balance and see if the whole thing makes sense. But so anyway, the point is the way to try it is just guess. Begin the the decryption of the file and go far only far enough in till you get enough uh, till you can see enough of the what might be the decrypted content to decide, "Oh, look, it's English." This I mean, it's no longer gibberish. This looks like a document. I'm seeing header case, stuff. Exactly. Exactly. No need to go through the entire thing. That'll just take you your your, you know several lifetimes. Um, Just get enough to see if it makes sense. And in fact, you could you could actually apply a clever a clever decryption scheme, which really does very minimal decryption. You know, only only goes in a, a few a few blocks worth of of deciphering, and immediately backs out and rejects a guess. If it's clearly not correct, and if it looks like, oh, it might be correct, go a little bit further. So um, anyway, that's the approach uh, to, to use if you're trying to just tackle something like that uh, and don't have any idea where to start. But, you know, you just have to brute force a file. The header is like that little nub that you can start scratching away at, sort of, so, so to speak, and get in there and erode the rest of that that encryption right well yeah it 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 provides some it provides a structured a sort of a structured um metadata for the file and you can normally quickly see whether it's probably whether it's i mean most decryptions are going to just produce complete noise as opposed to something that oh look that might be a header yeah by the way he wrote Viola. Everyone in the chat room was on me, and even Jammerby was like, Viola, not voila. <laughs> no, that's what he wrote. And that's he, he what did write 
He did it. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Matt in London shares a useful tip for Microsoft email users. Uh, hey, Steve, I use Outlook Express, always set to open email in plain text. However, if I see something that looks odd, I point to the unread email, click and drag onto the desktop where it becomes a little .eml envelope. I then open Notepad and drag the envelope onto the Notepad window. There I can see the headers and read in plain text just in case someone has a clever zero-day Outlook hack. That's a great tip, and I, so I wanted to share it with our listeners. Um, and it's you know it's simple to do. I, I'll I often do the same thing myself. I've got a a little hex editor that I ran across decades ago that I've you know carried uh-huh. with me from one from one Windows uh, update to another. Uh, just it's called Hex Edit, and any time something just looks a little suspicious. You know, it, it's an attachment that I would re- really, you know, want to open, but <laughs> I'm just scared to open it. Yeah. It's, I, I just say open in my little hex editor, and that allows me to browse around and kind of see what's in there without committing to opening it in one of the, you know, the typical um, proper format handlers. Um, and so this is this is something very sim- uh, very similar, but using tools that everyone has. So I think Matt's got a great little tip. That Just drag good. the file, you know, to the desktop, and then drop it on Notepad, and you can you then then you're viewing it in something that is just text and not and and Outlook has no chance to touch it. Yeah, everybody's sharing their uh, their their editors now in the chat room. This is great. Tamahome says Emacs, Web Seven One Five Seven, Notepad Plus. Uh, Strength says Mad Edit. I'd probably say G Edit. Uh, there's 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 lots of uh, lots of different approaches to that, but it's it's a usable tip no matter what kind of software you've got. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I just usually delete the email. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, student 17 in New Zealand shares an OAuth observation. Something I noticed when logging into a site using OAuth to authenticate with Twitter was that when my browser jumped to Twitter, LastPass recognized the site and autofilled my login details. Since LastPass would not autofill on a domain that looks like Twitter but is not Twitter, wouldn't this be a way to protect yourself from spoofing? That's a great thought um and the answer is yes um one of the things that i have noticed is since i'm an uh, avid LastPass user sometimes i'll go to a page and i'm expecting LastPass to see fields that it ought to populate and it's like okay wait a minute why is LastPass not you know engaging and 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 working so I've seen myself that once you get used to having LastPass around to fill in the fields for you, if something happens and it doesn't, you say, okay, wait a minute, what's wrong? Now, what I've noticed is sometimes I just have to kind of click in a field to wake up LastPass's observing stuff. You know, I have to give focus to one of the, the, the form's fields, and then LastPass will say, oh, you know, you want me to fill this in. Um, but we've we've been talking about... The problem of, and I, I, you know, here we are predicting the future again. There is going to be an exploit where people get used to using OAuth, the, the so-called login using your Twitter account, login using your Facebook account, which we're seeing more and more because it's a low-friction way of, of acquiring credentials from someone using, using you know, on, on, on a site where you aren't known, 
using a site where you are known. And it's very convenient, but the problem is spoofing. We are going to see instances of OAuth spoofing as this becomes increasingly popular. There's just, you know, there's no other way about it. And it's so, dead simple to make a page that looks like it's OAuth. Oh, yes. I mean, and, 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 and once people get used to doing it, they'll just say, oh, yeah, of course, you know, and won't notice that the URL is, you know, Facebook OO with zero zero K dot com in, instead. So, but again, a student 17 in New Zealand uh, observes LastPass would not engage. And so, you know, that's it's sort of nice to have it there and to have you say, wait a minute, why didn't LastPass log me in? My favorite is when they use the Cyrillic O's instead. So you can't even <laughs> tell by looking. Yep. Richard J. Toronto in Ontario, Canada, wonders about hardware made in China. I have been listening to your podcast for about two years now, and while I don't necessarily understand the propeller hat episodes, he calls them, I do learn a lot from the, from the show. I own Spinrite, and though I have not had to use it for a catastrophic HD failure, it did fix a mysterious random slowness issue with my mother's laptop. With the recent congressional warnings about Chinese telecoms being allowed to enter the U.S. and possibly spy on the communications they are helping to deliver, has anyone given thought to the hardware made in China? Even if Chinese companies are kept out, I would have to guess that most of the hardware that is used is either entirely or some part is made in China. Do companies that sell networking equipment tear down random samples of retail products to see if the components have been modified? For that matter, does a consumer electronics company like Apple perform tests like this? I would think that putting compromised equipment into your network would be just as bad as allowing a person to walk in off the street and sit at a terminal. Well... You know, I'm uncomfortable picking on China or any, you know, any one nation. Um, and we do know that apparently a lot of hacking is coming from Chinese IPs. The government officially denies any state sponsorship of that. And I want to take them at their word. Um, it, but it is the case that that there exists some international tensions between you know major global competitors there's a lack and, of trust yes and and richard's point or ricardo's point sorry is dead on right i mean we've seen instances where where microcode on products has been mistakenly you know, already contained malware, flash drives were shipped with malware on them. I mean, little mistakes like that have happened. And and if 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 a state sponsor like China really wanted to to infiltrate this country or any any company that was importing their exports, um they could certainly produce a modified, you know, network chip that that it would be. I mean, you'd have to really go to some lengths to see that there was something unusual about it. I mean, you know, state level sponsorship can produce a microprocessor with a whole chunk of private microcode that is only you only access if you put you know, specific data into certain registers and execute a certain instruction, and that takes you off into a different area of microcode. I mean, 
This is, sounds like science fiction, but it's absolutely possible. And, 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 and the U.S. does this to other countries. I mean, we, the U.S. was behind the, uh, the Stuxnet uh, attack on, on Iran. So it, it's not just China or Russia or it, it, all the governments are in this race to spy on each other, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. So, well, and, and, yes, and, and I was going to ask you about that, that detection, because the UK, I know, has a partnership with Huawei, Chinese company, where they will tear down uh, Huawei uh, equipment at random. So Huawei doesn't know what equipment's going to get checked and look for vulnerabilities. But, but what you're saying is there might be vulnerabilities that they just can't catch. Oh, I mean, yes, too. For example, um, you would, it would be necessary to, in the case of a processor... To completely reverse engineer from the silicon the 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 die itself and all of the microcode and and understand what every bit of it does. I mean, it's it's exactly like taking a huge piece of software and trying to find something that was deliberately done. You know, a, a backdoor put in a large software product. The only way to do that would be to reverse engineer and, and and you wouldn't have the source you would have only the binary you'd have to you'd have to de- decompile it disassemble it decompile it turn it you know back into source and then understand what every single line does and be looking at it from the standpoint of how can this be abused the the the, the problem is this has all become so complicated that it is absolutely possible for non non-intentional non-designed in features you're going to call them that to hide almost in plain sight i mean it, it's i mean the even even network simple network switches now are are managed and have you're able to log into them and give them passwords i just bought a little five port gigas uh, gigabit switch and I couldn't. I'm, I was amazed at the technology that is in this thing. And it's like, well, do we know that it doesn't respond to some secret, you know, sequence of packets that come along and allows it to bypass the passwords that the user has installed? So what do we, we don't know? What do we? What do we do? Because you could say, well, I'm just going to only buy if the chips are, are assembled and made in the U.S., but there could be the, somebody in the U.S. is spying on it. It could be anybody that's, that's well, putting this stuff in there. Yes, and, and, and even if the chips, even, for example, if China was, was, was building iPhone 5s using Apple's A6 chips, which Apple supplied, again, if, you're, if you've got state-level sponsorship – Nothing prevents a truck from making a left turn and a, and a replacement truck takes its place and has chips that look exactly like the, you know, the, the Apple A6 processor. I mean, I, I don't know how, uh, I, you know, you ask, what do we do about it? It's like, well, you just don't worry about it. <laughs> you, just, you just live, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and, and, and I guess you look for the effects of the sort of thing, right? You keep it, you keep, you try to keep secure, you keep encrypted, uh, and you, you try to make sure that you're not opening yourself up to as many vulnerabilities as possible, but. Well, yes, one thing we've, somehow we've never really discussed on this podcast in all of the podcasts we've done is the, is the conclusion that the best security people have come to 
which is that monitoring is the only way to know. Mm-hmm. That is, you 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 can have firewalls, you can have antivirus, you can have you know all of these sort of static defense systems, but actively watching the traffic, monitoring what comes in and out of your network, and asking questions about, well, you know, what's that connection over to there? I mean, it's it requires the right balance of, you know, a chill pill and knowing when to worry. Because, you know, if I ever do a netstat slash AN, I think that's what it is, or maybe it's ABN, that, that shows you all the connections, I've got stuff connecting out all over the place. It's like, wait, you know, and so if you sit there and try to explain every single one of those, it's like, okay, well, I've got so much software now, we all do, running on our machines. It's busy talking out to the Internet. It's very difficult to really audit that. You just got to do spot checks. But it's, it's, the only, it's yeah. really the only solution is, yeah. to, is to really, really closely monitor what's going on. Or get a backscatter scanner for all your... No, never mind. That's it. <laughs> uh, John Lockman in Ottawa says that UPEX security cannot be fixed. Uh, the, is, is it UPEX? Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. Okay. The entire problem with the UPEC model of using the fingerprint as a sole authentication factor is that Windows requires the password for other purposes, encrypted files on NTFS, for example, and thus they must store the password in some way. Even if they used the most secure algorithm in the most secure way, the password must at some point be decrypted into plain text before it can be used to tell Windows to log in as a specific user. Authentic can increase the security all they want, but anyone who reverse engineers the encryption on the password will be able to decrypt the password simply by definition. The only reasonable approach is to only use fingerprint as a second factor for authentication. The something you have, obviously, because you got it right. So, yeah, your finger. <laughs> um, so I agree with John in principle. First of all, I love his conclusion. The only reasonable approach is to only use fingerprint as a second factor for authentication. I absolutely agree that that makes sense. That's not as convenient as the whole side of like, you know, James Bond. Oh, cool. It's just thing just scanned my finger and now yeah. I can log into my computer using nothing else. Um, that said, there are... There are two approaches which which do solve this problem. One is the use of the so-called trusted platform module, the TPM, which exists in many laptops. And it's sort of it's having a hard time achieving critical mass. But the idea being, and we have done a podcast on it in the past, is that it absolutely will not export the things that it contains and and that it is potentially possible to design a system where the, the where a where features of a fingerprint are used in order to unlock it and without those features it just it will not produce the password so you you keep it from windows now it is the case that if you've got malware watching what goes on well then you've already got malware in your system um, up front the second possibility is to actually use features of the user's finger as the password. The problem is those are rather soft. You know, the fingerprint mm. changes angle. They, they, they swipe it differently. There's a different level of grease on the person's finger today as opposed to yesterday. And so, so it's, 
it's it's easier to match a fingerprint against the the learned template than it is to actually use features of the fingerprint for you know like as the password in which case if you did that there you would actually need that fingerprint in order to decrypt the stored password and once again it would be safe um i would argue it's probably possible to make that second approach work mm -hmm. um though certainly upec hasn't done that they've said oh yeah look this matches the template and then they perform a rather weak decryption of their weak encryption in order to provide the password. So in principle, I, I agree with John. I think he makes a good point that there, there's a fundamental problem with, with using a fingerprint as the sole authentication and using it in a multi-factor setting really does make the most sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, anything is going to be turned into digital information at some point, and that digital information then is no longer the thing itself. So uh, that kind of is what John's pointing out, I guess. Uh, well, yeah, I guess uh, the distinction, I, I think the reason I chose the question and wanted to discuss it a little bit is that there's a, dis there's a difference between deciding that there's a match and then unlocking mm -hmm. the the encrypted password so because then you all you have to do is you you find the the where is the match decision and you tell the software oh there was a match and then it unlocks the password so that's that's the less secure way to do it the alternative is to actually use the information in the fingerprint as the decryption key and the problem the, the problem with doing that is if it's if if you don't make it a a weak enough um a set of features that they're not going to vary from one swipe to the next you'll never get the same key twice and you'll never be able to properly decrypt it so it, there's a little bit of a catch-22 there as well. Yeah, you need to, to limit the number of times it has to be turned into something else, uh, and then it becomes more secure. But we, I guess we need technology to catch up with being able to have that be valid every time. Do you, yeah. do you use, uh, have you ever used Clear, the transportation security uh, line jumper thing? A lot uh -huh. of people don't like the idea clear because they're like, oh, well, somebody's got a database of all of my information. But I kind of figure somebody already has all that information <laughs> in a database. Uh, so what clear does is they, they do a fingerprint scan and then you get to skip the line at TSA. Now, you still have to go through whatever uh. security screening. You don't get to skip the security screening, but, but you do get to skip the line. And, and they, they have a very forgiving uh, fingerprint scanner. But it makes me wonder, now that we're having this conversation, just how secure secure it actually it is yeah well we could all skip the security line and we'd just be fine too, yeah i so. know well that's yeah. kind of what we were just talking about in network <laughs> security applies to people too doesn't it yeah. uh jared vandenberg or to leo john of the mountain and wanning which i'm sure i didn't pronounce right near gouda gouda the netherlands says that steve and leo you guys are criminals he says I was just listening to episode 375 at which you talk about having removed DRM from a Kindle book that you owned and that there are tools available to do, sir. That, sir, as crazy as it sounds, is illegal. 
I was shocked, shocked to hear that you did not know this as, legitimate you may, as legitimately as you may feel about it. According to Section 103 of the DMCA, quote, no person shall circumvent a technological measure that effectively controls access to a work protected under this title, end quote. The act also prohibits the distribution of tools that enable a user to circumvent access controls or controls that protect a right of copyright holder. And you cannot compl- complain, ah, you cannot claim that it's fair use because the DMCA does not contain any explicit exception. That's what got the DCSS guys in trouble. Uh, He also points to a Wikipedia article about anti-circumvention and says, just wanted to point that out. Personally, I'm against any form of DRM on any media because it prevents making a backup, lending, or selling something you legally own. So if you want a DRM-free ebook, pirate it. Better not (laughs) to pay and be a criminal than pay and still be a criminal, according to John of the Mountain, that is. So... Okay, I didn't intend to imply that Leo and I did not know that that was illegal. Um, I understood. Uh, just to to fill you in, Tom, there was a I had a, a Kindle book with a low number of installs on its counter, and, a mach- and I was using it on my stair climber, which is a PC based Kindle software, and uh, I. Uh, um, I reformatted that drive oh, and set it up uh-huh. and forgot and didn't didn't remove it and up you know and increase my count and so when I wanted to put it back on the rebuilt machine it said oh you've exceeded your number yeah. your you know your install limit it's like what happens to me so, with print books all the time no wait yes. no it doesn't <laughs> so anyway so I thought okay well I've been wanting to play around with uh, Caliber which. I was call I was pronouncing Calibre, but uh, but uh, Elaine informed me that she did the research and it really was Caliber. Caliber, yeah, I have Caliber too. It's a good program. Um, you know, and it's I I just wanted to see if it worked, and so sure enough, I was able to remove the DRM and read the book that I already purchased and I legally owned, and and I know that Leo and I both know that that's a breach of the DMCA. Now. It's not a breach of my own ethics because I didn't give it to anybody else. I, you know, I'm not intending to. I would argue about some aspects of the DMCA. I will take responsibility for having done that. Um, at the same time, I don't think that I am the target of, you know, the DMCA. It is more, you know, the DE, the CSS guys and, you know, people who are doing mass mass decryptions of Blu-ray DVDs and, you know, producing them at at low cost and so forth. So also the Library of Congress issues exemptions to the DMCA for certain things like unlocking a phone that you own. You even though that technically would violate the DMCA because you're breaking copyright uh, encryption, the the yep. Library of Congress has said no. We're going to allow that. We're going to give exemptions. So and those exemptions just changed recently. So it's worth checking if you're if you're if you're concerned about this sort of thing to find out if the behavior you want to do is in fact an exemption. I know that uh, removing DRM from eBooks to make them accessible uh, to text readers for for blind people is an exemption that's allowed under the yep. DMCA. Now that's not well, what you're and, doing, I know, but yeah, and and you know, uh, uh, the conclusion of better to pirate it and not pay and be a criminal than to pay and still be a criminal, I will, you know, I'm on the other side of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm proud to have purchased the books that I 
you know, spend many hours enjoying. And if the DRM gets in my way for my personal use, then eh, I'm going to remove it. And, 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 and there's lots of about it. Uh, DRM free ebooks are, are starting to gain some traction. Bain Books has been doing it for a long time. Tor, yes. the sci-fi publisher, just announced that all its ebooks are now DRM free. So you can find really good stuff without even having to come close to breaking the law that doesn't have DRM on it. Uh, and, yeah, and all of. I was just, uh, no, was just going to say uh, I have been in the situation where someone very close to me had illegally acquired a copy of a movie that I watched. Uh, with her, and what I did to make myself feel better about it is I bought a ticket. I didn't go to the movie. I just went online, Fandango, bought a ticket. Nice. So, you, I mean, you, you, you know, I'm on the other side of that too, Steve, which is I want people to do the right thing, and I want the system to work so that it encourages you to do the right thing, so, it, so that, that John here doesn't feel like pirating is the best option. Yeah, well, and I wanted to mention, you, you mentioned Bain, and they're the publisher of all the Honor Harrington novels, um, and all, you know, very available at very low cost and DRM-free. Dave Kodama in Cerritos, California, also comments on Amazon Books and DRM. Uh, he says, Steve, Amazon's DRM has always bothered me. So when I found out that O'Reilly books come DRM-free and include multiple formats, such as PDF, I've made an effort to always purchase the books directly from O'Reilly. I have noticed that they often cost a little more than the same book on Amazon, but I try and support O'Reilly's business decision by voting with my wallet. Perhaps some of your listeners may be unaware of that option. For the most part, I buy only throwaway books from Amazon. If Amazon disappeared, I would not be happy as I like doing business with them, but I won't be losing anything I really want to keep around. It's been right user since version three or maybe two. So I thought this was a very good point. I, I follow exactly the same policy with O'Reilly's books. I mean, I've, I've got them all over the place. And now that they're offering them in both in, in soft cover and ebook format, what I'll do is I'll I'll if I normally I'll buy both because they offer a discount and on the electronic side they make them available in every format so EPUB and Mobi and um uh EPUB Mobi PDF and a couple others and for example when I was learning how to use the um uh the HTML5 canvas features um on web browsers to do the 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 magnetic recording waveform animation that i did a while ago um i had the pdf version of the book up in in a pdf viewer where the you know the table of contents column was there i was able to do a search through the whole thing i was able to jump around it was it was just fantastic to have the book in pdf format so um it's really convenient and i'm the same way sometimes i'll be over on Amazon and almost click that I want to purchase it. I go, oh, wait a minute. This is an O'Reilly book. And I go over to O'Reilly and buy it there. And then I download like all the versions that I could think I might want, EPUB and Mobi and PDF, and then, you know, sometimes have the, the softbound book sent to me physically so that I have it to, to flip through the pages as well. So, yeah, I'm 100% supporter of O'Reilly stuff for for the, the books, the typically techie books that they offer. And I, I just published my chronology of tech history on Amazon Kindle Direct. I swear there was an option where I could say, no, don't put DRM on it. Uh, maybe I'm confusing that, but I, I, I wouldn't see why O'Reilly wouldn't have that option too, 
when they're selling their books. So you might want to check and see. They, they may not have DRM on the huh. Kindle books. I think Amazon says you can, you can choose as the publisher. But and for me, it's the fact that I can have it as a PDF. Yeah, that's you, just, you get all the formats. So... I know. That's the, that's the best thing ever. Yep. Uh, Christopher Ursich in Lyndhurst, Ohio, comments on OAuth with Facebook and Google, suggesting that we just look for HTTPS. Uh, in the past two shows, you've discussed the problem with OAuth, where the user is tricked into entering their credentials into a phony Facebook or Google authentication page. I think it's worth mentioning or reminding people that this situation is no different than entering credentials on any web page. You simply need to look for HTTPS and that the domain listed is what you expect. This is always my careful practice. What burns my butt is how some sites will try to make the authentication window pretty by eliminating the address bar. In those cases, I just don't proceed. I find another way to log in or I just decide that I don't need whatever the site is offering. Displaying the HTTPS and domain should be part of the OAuth spec. Fortunately, sites that use Mozilla Browser ID don't seem to misbehave this way. Thanks so much to you and Leo for Security Now. Your coverage always prompts me to dig even deeper into the topics on my own. Listener, since the Onion Router, episode 70, Spinrite owner and aspiring ketosisizer. <laughs> well, I don't mean to belabor the OAuth issue endlessly, although I'm, we're going to do it on our final question, uh, the, the next one coming up as right. well. I do think that it's important, and I, I want to focus our listeners on it because, like I said, I, I, we're predicting the future. I know this is going to bite us. And, and Christopher's approach, while it sounds good, it's, it, I think probably our listeners are far less likely to be caught out by it than the world at large. It's not our relatively small compared to the global listener base that I'm worried about because we understand these things and we're cautious. But there is no way my mom is ever going to understand HTTPS and whether it's an extended validation site and what it means that the address bar turned green or, you know, I mean, or even that she would look to say that it didn't say Facebook instead of instead of Facebook. She just would assume. I mean, she just she wouldn't even look there. Yeah. So so th this is a case where convenience and security are colliding and um it I, i've got a bad feeling about that well and even even educated listeners and viewers of, of this show uh will occasionally forget you're human you know you make mistakes you're in a, you're, you're in a hurry you're you're like you know your spouse is waiting for you and it's like okay well just one second you know and yep yep and you just click that okay button without thinking one time and and all of a sudden you've lost all your data all it takes. <laughs> Matt Honand. Uh, I mean, that, that's a, a horrible uh, cautionary tale. What happened to Matt Honand at Wired? Yes. Very sophisticated user. Not yep. you know, not a dummy by any stretch. Uh, and Blake Watt in, in Troy, Michigan, does suggest an OAuth spoofing solution using security pictures and phrases. Hey, Steve, started listening just before Christmas of last year and have fallen in love with this podcast, bought Spinride, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 as Leo would say. I was listening to listener feedback number 153 and the discussion about OAuth. The problem you were having was how do we ensure the users can authenticate Facebook's page so they know they are entering their credentials into the right site and not a spoofed OAuth Facebook portal? Well, I am an IT auditor in the financial institution sector and instantly knew of an answer that is a 
natural progression from the idea that we use pictures of our Facebook friends, a predetermined security picture and security phrase. Almost every financial institution I audit now has the simple security feature installed as part of the initial online banking setup phase where the user selects their image and writes up their own unique phrase to go along with it. In the case of OAuth, the real Facebook page would be able to display the image you selected when you set up your security settings in Facebook, since you would have navigated to Facebook yourself to set up the images before Facebook would allow OAuth to work. But the important part is that the bad guys wouldn't know what the security image or phrase you chose was and wouldn't be able to display it to you. The only problem I can see is that it might be possible for the bad guys to scrape the image or phrase off of Facebook's actual login page if they know the email you used for Facebook and then be able to display it to you as part of a spoofed site. But I would imagine that attack might be more complicated and only be part of a spear phishing attack. Can you think of a solution to that point? Since such a vulnerability would exist for financial institutions as well and the only protection being a somewhat hard to guess username. So, okay, um, this is the, I promise this is the last time we're going to talk about this, but it still confuses people. So I thought it was worth saying it once again. I'm sure we could sit down and logically demonstrate a, a proof for the fact that this is a catch-22. Um, if you... If you go to a OAuth login site like Facebook, either you you and you do something to identify yourself, and then they show you something to to to, to attempt to do mutual authentication. That's what we're talking about: mm-hmm. is mutual authentication. It's not just we want to authenticate with them; we need them to authenticate with us. We, and, and that's why, uh, as Blake has suggested, we ask them to provide us something that only they know. The problem is, and this has already been done, so this is not theoretical, a theoretical attack. It's exactly the same as if we are bounced to a spoofed site and that looks exactly like Facebook's who are you claiming to be. We, pro- we provide that information on the web page and submit it. We think we're submitting it to Facebook. We're submitting it to the spoofed server. The spoofed server immediately goes to Facebook, provides that information, gets the reply page, and that's what it sends us in reply to our submission. So it has inserted itself as a man in the middle in a classic man in the middle attack and we see the information we're expecting from Facebook. So what's what's actually happened is this is worse than if it wasn't than if we weren't expecting mutual authentication because now we have affirmative proof we think that this really is Facebook. But in fact, it's still Facebook, and Facebook just queried Facebook behind the scenes to provide us with what Facebook would have provided us directly. So now we're really sure that we're in the right place and we provide the the balance of our authentication information and it's stolen by Facebook as po- as part of this OAuth, you know, spoofed login. 
So and there's, there's no way around that because there is whatever not. you would give Facebook to get that image, Facebonk can take too. It, you can come up with a million different scenarios, but they all have that particular weakness, right? Yes, and that's why I meant. Uh, that's what I meant when I said I'm sure we could we we could rigorously demonstrate that there is no solution to this because 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 of the possibility of a man in the middle that or in, in this case a site in the a website in the middle that is grabbing our submission then on the fly getting it from fa- from the real facebook and then providing us what facebook sent to it and so then it receives the, the second phase of our authentication I, I there just isn't a way around this well so in other words, we're still stuck with the, the usual problem of security, which is you have to teach people to be better at security, which well, works which for is, some, but not, but not for everyone. Well, and, and we keep coming back to this. It is the tension that exists between convenience and security. Is it convenient to use a third-party site to authenticate? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I see that option increasingly it's like oh here you know rather than filling out these forms and telling us all about who you are you know and no one wants to do that especially for like you just want to make a posting on a blog somewhere no that's why last pass and one password and all those companies have a business right yeah yeah by the way facebonk.com is available for sale (laughs) if if anyone (laughs) i was just that's what i was doing just then when you saw me (laughs) when you caught me looking at my laptop uh, well, that, that's it. That's the last of our questions. Steve, this has been really fun, as usual. Uh, and I'm so glad I get to do this a couple more times, uh, selfishly, before Leo comes back from Australia. Yep. Looking forward to it next week. I'm not sure what we'll talk about, but I'm sure I'll have an interesting main topic for us and whatever interesting news has happened in the meantime. Well, I cannot wait uh, to find out. Of course, folks, uh, don't forget, if you haven't figured it out already, grc.com uh, for SpinRight, for Shields Up. Uh, for all kinds of cool projects. Is, is there anything new going on over there? What's, what's the most recent thing that you've put up? Because you've always got something cool cooking. Yeah, I've got a few things in the works. So all I right. think I'll just keep them, I'll, I'll, I'll keep them close to the, to the vest for the moment. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to finding out what those are. Show notes are always at twit.tv slash SN. That's it for security now, folks. Stay secure. We'll see you next time. Security.